Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Know to Grow podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ivan Khan, and I'll be breaking down topics around education, growth, and culture with the intention to help your own growth journeys. For those not familiar with our hosting organization, Constitutorial, I serve as a CEO there, and we serve kids K-12 through in supplemental education centers throughout New York City. One of the unique privileges of my work is the opportunity to really know the various communities that our team serves and discover the various challenges that students face within themselves, their families, and overall community systems. Today, I'm joined by my, by my guest, Unsha B, for a very, very special episode uh, for all of our listeners out there, and it's on mental health, getting help early. Unsha B is a former teammate of ours at Cons. She's an oncology nurse, and more recently, she's joined the Bengali Mental Health Movement, um, a fantastic platform, to really, really share her story, her experiences with this topic, and um, it's it's some you know whether it's our episode today or other episodes that she's been going to be doing for other podcasts. We really, really uh, recommend you following her. Unsha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us on the Know to Grow pod. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. And I want to thank you again for helping me and everybody else bring awareness to this topic that does not get much exposure. I'm so grateful to you, your platform, and your writing. I became very, very familiar with your story over, you know, over some, over, over some time. We go way back. You're a former student at Cons and a former teammate. And more, more importantly to me personally, you've been an oncology nurse. So, you know, knowing how much that's been, you know, part of my family's uh, experiences, I thought, what better conversation to have than with you, especially now that you're writing and talking a lot more about it. So let's start with your childhood. Tell us about your upbringing in Queens or whatever part of New York you're from, and we'll start there. So I was born and raised in Queens, literally practically lived in the same house up until like in a, actually tomorrow I'm moving out. Oh so my gosh. first time, yeah, wow, literally lived in the same place. Thanks. Um, so I would say growing up, I felt very privileged to live in such a diverse um, place in America. Um, you know, I always felt like all of my friends just had so many different perspectives and I had a lot of fun growing up in that environment. And I'm sure it's much different for a lot of people who grew up elsewhere. Um, so that's also why it's made me so hard to leave New York. And I, that's why I've stayed for my whole life. So you are moving. Yes. I, I was, I did not know that before uh, you just mentioned it. So yeah. that must bring a lot of stress, you know, with the topics, yes. mental health and they say in the literature that moving is one of the biggest stressors that an individual can go through. So what's that been like for you and how are you, how are you dealing with that? I completely agree. Um, with any big change comes the stressors that go along with it and any big adjustment in your life will just almost bring up old things that you might feel like you haven't healed from mm. or you're dealing with. So for me, it's been like a mix of excitement and almost confusion and fear. Because I'm just like, wait, I'm so familiar with this. I don't know if it's the right thing to do. But then at the same time, I'm like, okay, this is normal. Like, you're supposed to move out and, like, you know, be more independent and just kind of find your own identity more so. And what's a better way to do that than living by yourself and knowing exactly who you are? That's awesome. So it sounds like you're moving uh, for your out of, out of your parents' home for the yeah. first time. Uh, your parents have stayed back in the same home that you've grown yeah. up in, um, have created so many wonderful memories as yeah. well as some tough ones. Yeah. Tell us about your journey towards becoming a nurse um, and some of the things that you see there around today's topic of mental health. So my path in becoming a nurse, I would say from a young age, I was exposed to seeing so many caregivers um, for my brother, Rashad. So he was born with spinal muscular atrophy. So that's a genetic disorder where you're practically paralyzed, can't really do anything for yourself. Um, you know, it's total care on the family and all the caregivers. So from he was born when I was seven. So from that age, I kind of already saw that environment um, and I could see that I was good at being a caregiver also. So it kind of like just led the path for me as I grew up. At the same time, also like in our community, you know, there's like a lot of emphasis on like, you have to do medicine or, you know, it's, you know, either lawyer, engineer or something like that. So I feel like in my head, it was already ingrained that my fate was to do medicine. So that also pushed me towards it. But I would say ultimately, it was because of Rashad and because I knew 
I gave such good care to him that I wanted that to be reflected in other patients. And I felt like everybody deserved that like unconditional love that he had, but it, it shouldn't be limited to only your family members or, you know, just because I'm his sibling. Wow. So as you're going through it as a seven-year-old, as an eight-year-old, and you're growing up and you see that your family's in this situation, someone you love so much, uh, and, your, and your new baby brother and, and your parents are going through it, over time, that kind of stuff becomes more and more normalized when you're going through it yourself. Can you please share a little bit about that phenomena and how it's such a contrast to what other people may be seeing from the outside? Yeah, so from a young age, you're definitely right. It is normalized, and it's not until after, you know, maybe just in the last two years where I've realized that it may not have been the most normal situation to be in. So at a young age, um, even like research shows, like if you have a sibling or somebody in your family that requires like a lot of care due to an illness or where the attention has to be primarily on that sibling or that family member, that everybody around will kind of like shrink the space that they take up. Mm -hmm. So I felt like that was the case for me, but it was never out of resentment or anything like that. Like I already just knew like, okay, like, you know, this happened and like we have to deal with it. So for me, like, I was always okay with putting my brother first. And, like, I didn't feel neglected by my parents, like, really. I feel like they did try really hard to really put me in the picture and, and him at the same time. But over time, you know, there's a lot of things that just go on where you realize, like, you know, this there, there should have been, like, an earlier intervention just for coping and help for all of us, like, collectively as a family and as each individual. You can't go back to, you know, and redo the past. Right. However, looking back at it, and for listeners who may be going through something similar at home, if they are, you know, let's say they're an adolescent, and they're going through something similar with uh, a sick sibling, and the entire family unit's affected. Uh, starting there, are there things that you'd suggest for a family, like, going through that? I would suggest... First, the most simple thing you can do is talk to each other really about how you're feeling and what's going on. So it shouldn't be kind of swept under the rug like, okay, like this is a situation. This is it. It should be more of a conversation like, oh, like, you know, let's say, for example, in my case, like you, your brother got diagnosed with this disease. Like, how does it make you feel like, you know, are you scared do you feel like the attention is going to be taken away from you? Like any just little conversations and questions like that, I feel like could take off a lot of tension and stress and, you know, not really make you feel like you're the invisible one or you're not allowed to take up the space. I think it gives you the permission to believe like, oh, even though all of this is going on, like my opinion is important mm -hmm. and my experiences are validated. So I think earlier on having those conversations and, making each family member feel like, okay, you're allowed to have your own identity despite all of these circumstances, and that's okay. Like, you can do both at the same time. You can be sad and be a caregiver and be frustrated and have exhaustion, but at the same time, you can identify what your hobbies are. You can take some time to yourself to figure things out. What you're describing takes me back to the time of my dad's diagnosis. So I was 20, uh, starting off my first medical school course as anatomy. So you've taken a lot of the same courses for your training. And I remember having to, the first night my parents were sitting and we weren't, my, my folks weren't crying, but they were just trying to absorb the shock of the news that my dad may have cancer. So for, for maybe like a week, or 10 days between scheduling the biopsy and knowing that the, the news is probably going to not be good. You know, I actually had a conversation with my dad and I was like trying to figure out, oh crap, how do I like ask him how he feels? And like as a brown kid, you're not used to talking to your parents, even if they're super liberal or progressive yeah. and cool, man, you know, yeah. like... So my, my, my folks actually met in the West. They're both Bangladeshi and they met in the West and in, in, in Russia, if that's, you know. Uh, but even then it was challenging to have that conversation. And, uh, so, you know, when I asked my dad, how are you feeling? You're the patient. 
you know, and one of the first things he said was, you know, I feel bad for you. Um, I don't want to think about you growing up without a dad and stuff like that. And by then I was so fortunate because, you know, I was 20. I didn't have to go through too much trauma at a much younger age. So I bring that up because it's tough to talk to your parents if you're from a multicultural environment. You're a Bangladeshi uh, New Yorker from Queens. Our parents come from a different generation in time. They've gone through so many more experiences, even just, even not counting these medical catastrophes. What can folks do out there when you're in that multicultural space to have start that conversation? It's very difficult, I think. It's, it's a challenge to bring up that conversation to sometimes people who aren't even open or aware to it. So I think in my own experience, what I can say is, it's kind of something you have to keep doing and hoping that like the door is open one day. Um, but at the same time, you know, you can't change people. And I've learned to accept that as well. Like you can expose them as much as you can to all these conversations and try to be engaged with them. But at the end of the day, it's also up to another individual to accept that space and like accept what you're going to say to them. And, but I feel like ultimately it's like, a constant exposure it's having these conversations it's kind of normalizing that it is okay to talk about your feelings and like we're not in that place anymore right now like here where we are in that survival mode of yeah you know every like you have to constantly be on the go and like we're trying to make ends meet and all the early days for all yes yes like i think with at least for me what i feel like with my parents like, you know, they've worked hard their whole entire lives. And I feel like now I'm like, okay, you know, we, like we can calm down. We can like enjoy our life now. Like the hardships like have happened and they've shaped us. But now like we can relax. But I feel like even biologically, it's not physically possible right away because they're so used to the survival mindset. How are they doing now? I think right now, I mean, they're definitely trying to find their own identity. Like, I'll definitely try and, you know, convince them and have conversations with them. Like, oh, you know, what's that passion you have? Like, you know, you really like baking. Like, for example, to my mom, like, oh, do you want to, like, start baking or doing something? And she'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, like, you're right. Like, I need to find some other resources and hobbies. And I'm like, okay, like, you know, it's, I feel like it kind of sometimes gets stuck in that conversation mode, but not the action mode. And it's because, like, I feel like our parents are so used to just working hard. They had this one vision when they came here to, like, create a life for their children and have, like, the best for us that they forget who they were before they even had us and who they were meant to be before everything else happened growing up with them. So <clears throat> so care, caregiver stress is pretty real. Yeah. Whether you're... Um, whether you're a family dealing with a catastrophic situation, a medical situation or anything similar, God forbid, or just mixed in with the, the intersection of being a new immigrant in a new country. So um, I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation. I think it's about time for the short for the first break. Uh, to all the listeners, you are listening to the Know to Grow podcast. I am joined by Unsha B for the episode on mental health, getting help early. We'll be right back. talking about mental health, getting help early, and I am joined by oncology nurse Unsha B. Before we went to our break on show, we were speaking about caregiver stress and whether it's caregiver stress for a sick family member and how that can shape a family or other types of stress that you're going through because of you know family separation due to ICE, uh, deportation threats, financial insecurity, Housing insecurity, the list can go on. 
What are some early signs that young people, 20 to 30, 35, can be looking out for? And what are some of the first things we can do? I think some of the first signs that we can look out for are physical signs, which often get ignored, um, especially when we grew up in a community where there's so much competition and so much pressure to do well, always be ex- like excelling at every single thing that we do. Oftentimes, I feel like taking a break and knowing the difference between exhaustion and just needing mental help, those two things just get really blurred in its boundaries and lines. So I think the, some of the first signs is to see, you know, if you're constantly feeling exhausted and tired and, you know, maybe you are getting enough sleep, maybe you just feel extreme stress and you're, you're starting to feel some kind of resentment towards what you're doing. I think those are signs that, you know, some kind of conversation needs to happen and there needs to be some kind of interventions that come into place, even as simple as just talking about your feelings. I think we're so used to thinking that our situations are isolating a lot of the times. You know, we're often told growing up, like, no, don't tell anybody that happened Mm -hmm. or, you know, you don't need to tell that other family member about your personal life or your information. But I think sharing is more liberating and it can help promote healing and decreased all of those physical signs that I just talked about. A lot of the phenomena that you describe isn't limited to South Asian immigrants. I've, you know, have uh, immigrant friends from Nigerian communities and Latin communities and East Asian, Korean, Chinese communities and, you know, other communities where it's still very, very taboo to uh, admit or acknowledge that we have this you know, we have stress or we have physical symptoms of stress. Um, having served as a board member at SUPNA, uh, which is a not-for-profit organization based out of Westchester Square in the Bronx, one of the signature programs that we, uh, to help immigrant moms in the Bronx was around mental health. And it was often described as tension because culturally it's easier to talk about, I'm our tension hunting. You know, I'm a guy, I'm a shit, I'm a tension That's how my mom is yep. doing, right? So it's, it's, those are maybe some of the baby steps to addressing like the bigger picture of like anxiety, depression. You mentioned physical symptoms. I've mentioned in other podcasts where for me personally, it was back pain. So if we can go through a top five or 10 draft of physical symptoms of stress. So if you're, you're having this at home, start, and you know, it's, and I want to also address the difference between relying on your friends, your personal circle for what type of support that's appropriate for and when it's really appropriate to step outside of that to add on counseling, therapy, or uh, services on campus or at your job. So we'll start there. You get the first two picks of uh, bodily changes to stress from, uh, from the nurse and the doc. Okay. So extreme fatigue despite getting enough sleep, despite having your blood work be in normal ranges, like let's say, for example, if you're anemic and your blood work is a little low. So let's say normal blood work. Profile's fine. Yes. You're still you're getting enough sleep. You're still yes. super tired. Still super tired. Another one, feeling like any little thing will kind of make you emotional. So not to say that being emotional is not valid, but it's more so identifying that this situation is making me emotional and there's a reason for it. And maybe there's a bunch of other things going on that are even tied to this that I'm not even recognizing. I'm going to add to that, but it's a different one. Irritable mood. Yes. Because what you described is just having just extra feelings. And irritable mood could just be being short. Yes. Um being pissed off over road rage or something yes. going wrong in the subway and like you're like really pissed off. So I got irritable mood. I'll also give uh, my favorite, my personal favorite because it affected me for so long, debilitating back pain or musculoskeletal manifestations. You got next. Let's see. I think it goes along with being irritable, like a lack of patience. And physically, let me think. Kind of drawing a blank right now. I'll take the baton. 
How about appetite changes, a loss yes. of appetite or a gain in appetite? That's a good one for sure. Um, and again, you know, even in those situations, your blood work can be normal and still you might be having all these different changes, but it's all related to your mood and your emotional state and your psychological being. Feeling hungry, but I'm not hungry. Yes. Like what? So it could be a whole mix of everything. Whose turn is it? Probably mine. Um, let me think. I feel like everything's starting to blend Producers, into you guys want to chime in? GI issues. GI issues. Yes, that is a big one. Um, and I'm actually surprised that I didn't mention that because that's like a big one for me. Definitely like, you know, any stomach issues, you've gone to multiple doctors, not figuring out why. Um, acid reflux issues, that's a big one. So that one. could be heartburn. Yes. Go to the bathroom extra, a frequent trip to the bathroom. It could be constipation. It could be all of the above or any anything in the entire from your esophagus to, you know, where. Um, I, you push by, you want to get the next one? Uh, like a, what's it called, a weird or an abnormal sleep schedule? Oh, sleep disturbances. Insomnia. I can't sleep or I feel too sleepy. Hypersomnolence. Really, really want to feel like to sleep it off or you can't sleep at all. We're rounding out our list for the final two. Uh, we, I think with backaches, I think headaches. Headaches are common manifestation. Anyone, uh, you want to round up the list? Let's see. What else? Physical symptoms. Um, can it be, can that lead to anxiety and depression? Stress. Do you believe stress can lead to anxiety and depression? I do believe it can lead to anxiety and depression and a multitude of other um, issues, yeah. So when young people are going through something, the first resource that they can think of is, all right, I got my best friend, I got my significant other, they're going to help me get through this, or my crew got me, my boys, my girls. And then you start realizing that even though they're your friends, they can't fulfill that sudden big void that you have inside your soul because your dad's really sick or your brother's really sick. What advice did you go through that? Or, and what advice would you have, even despite having the best friends in the, in the world, just that, that weird, that, that separation? Describe that a little bit. I can definitely identify with that. Um, even though I've always had a close group of supportive friends, a lot of long-term friends even that know about everything that's been going on from day one, it still wouldn't feel enough for me because I just still ultimately felt isolated at the end of the day because nobody was going through my exact same situation. And I think it's important to know that despite everybody having a unique situation, you're not alone. Everybody does have a challenge that they're going through. But it's different when you're talking to friends versus, let's say, a professional because that professional person is trained to help individuals going through traumatic situations or stress, anxiety, depression, a multitude of things. They've been professionally trained for this in a clinical setting. Um, and they also can hold you accountable for all these things. It can help work with you for your goals. And it's more of a set time and place to identify all of that. Versus when you're talking to your friends, you know, it can be random. Maybe you're in the middle of a conversation and you feel a certain way and then you kind of have to pick back on that conversation. And it, it I feel like it's just you need a different setting to help you go through that and manage all of these things. Do you think it's common for people to feel resentful towards their friends for not feeling that they're there the way they need? Yes, I think that's a very common thing that can happen. And ultimately, at the end of the day, like, you know, people, I think it's important to acknowledge, like, your true friends and, you know, people who do love you do want to be there for you. But at the same time, ultimately, somebody won't know exactly how you're feeling unless they're in your shoes. And while that can build resentment, I think once you're more open to the conversation and you begin the healing process, you can kind of start to feel more compassion towards other people and not understanding your scenario. And it's almost like in a grateful sense, like, you know, I'm almost glad you don't know exactly what I'm feeling because then you would be going through the situation. And I don't, I kind of don't want that for you at all. Mm. Yeah. So you get, so you're advising that there's a, there's, 
there's a fine line and a balance you still want to strike because you want to maintain a friendship and not have not rely on them for something that you probably need more of, which is therapy or yes. counseling or a, a, a different environment for addressing that. Yes, I think it is your you know, your friends and your family members and other loved ones, it's in their good intention to be there for you. But there is a certain boundary that you have to keep for yourself and an accountability for you versus them. They also have their own issues that they need to deal with, that they need help and coping with. And it's not the easiest thing for them either to see you going through that situation. And sometimes on the other end, it can feel really hopeless and helpless. Like, you know, if, For example, like if I'm telling somebody about my brother's death and they haven't gone through that and it's something irreversible, they can't change, you know, for them almost it feels sad. Like I I don't know what to tell you or do for you versus if you go to a professional, like, you know, they've had other clients with these similar situations and they can tell you like, look, this is grief. This is how the process goes. It's not linear. And from a more clinical and research background, like this is how the process will go. And it's more so the professional, this is, I know that going in, this is their job. This is my set time with them. My boundary with them is that you are providing me with the service that I have signed up for. And it's my conscious ability to go there versus with a friend. It's more so, you know, based off of. Is it my turn to hear my stuff now? Right. You have that, you have that fear that what if I'm giving too much of myself? Right robbing the conversation and I'm hijacking right. the moment and right. we're supposed to be out for coffee or going to the gully or something cool like that. Yeah. Um, what's your vision for the, you're clearly part of a platform with other brands and platforms that's bringing a lot more awareness. Before we go to our next and final break, what's your vision for, for those after you? And then after the break, we'll go into some actual steps that folks can take for themselves, whether you're in college, just starting out the workforce, and so on and so forth. My vision would be to keep engaging in conversations like this and to basically decrease and, you know, it would be really ideal to erase the stigma completely of mental health and not have any of these topics be taboo. But I know that's going to take a lot of work in the community and it's going to be a lot of awareness and spreading that conversation. So I think starting off my vision is to have people even accept the idea that these issues do exist and it's okay that they exist. And it's okay that everybody has their challenges. Everybody has their bad days. Everybody has their good days. I think I want to spread my vision of a community that stands together even in their hard times and not and erase like the isolating factor of like, no, this this only happens to me and I'm being vulnerable and nobody understands me. But it's more so believing that every individual has their own hardships. And it's just like it, it, it is going to happen. Like while we're on Earth, everybody will have a challenge. Like nobody's mm-hmm. immune to not having any issues in mm-hmm. their life. And I think also erasing the idea of comparing like you know oh well I went through this as a child and like you know maybe nobody in my circle has dealt with death but they have other challenges that maybe feel as catastrophic as a death so I don't think it's I want to erase the comparison yes I I had to cope I used that coping mechanism when I was uh, going through my stress as a caregiver because I was you know starting off the med school my dad suddenly had this a really severe diagnosis where we wouldn't know if he's going to live for the next two years or five years, and his chances were only 20 to 40% based on research on the internet. So I was like, oh, shit, my dad got cancer, and I'm in medical school. However, I have friends of mine who may be financially on their own a lot more and not having some help from their folks to get through college. Yeah. Um, so it, it's... I had to remind myself, like, everyone has their own yes. cards that are dealt. Yes. And it's 
not it's it's everyone owns everyone else's own journey to get through that exactly yeah it's everybody else's own journey their own accountability and it's also how everybody deals with something like you know a lot of people tell me like oh you've gone through all of this but you know you're still moving forward i feel like i can't even get through this one thing and you know it's it, it's just like knowing everybody has their challenges and you're right it's the cards that everybody's dealt with like you know May, like with growing up with my brother like you know he was always happy and in such a good mood and always positive but you know I know a lot of people who maybe aren't disabled and have everything but yeah. they might still be unhappy it's just I feel like I don't want to label it as looking at the silver lining of everything because yeah. I don't believe you have to have a lesson out of your trauma because again like you know it can go into the lines of invalidating your yeah. situation but I think it's just kind of your own individual experience. I think if we just stop comparing ourselves to everybody and just focusing on yourself, like that's how everybody will grow and like get so much for themselves and know their own identity. Like when I'm focused on my own identity, I don't even have time to think like, oh, like is my trauma worse than yours or better? It's like, no, this is how I'm dealing with it. If you need help with something that feels traumatic to you, but you know, maybe isn't on the same exact level that I think it's fine. What what are some fun things that you and Rashad like to do together before we go to the culture section? Um, he I honestly half of I feel like our relationship was him bullying me and me convincing him to watch like a certain show that I would want to watch. And he would be like, no, 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 I'm changing the channel. And then I would like leave, come back. See, he's watching the show that I convinced him to watch with me. And he's like, oh, no, now that you're here, I don't really want to watch it. So there's a lot of like back and forth. Um, and then uh, I would bring my friends over all the time because like he couldn't um, leave the house really. So I would bring everybody to him and he like would become friends with my friends. Like there were times where he would be like, oh, you know, like, can you just like leave for a second? I'm just like having a conversation with your friends. And I'm like, no, they're my friends. And I brought them over. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Like you just come back like in five minutes. I'm just trying to have a conversation with them. So it was just a lot of like their, that sibling relationship. And it was still there even despite everything else that was going on. Thank you for sharing that. You are listening to the number podcast, mental health, getting help early. We will be back right after this short break. Welcome back to the Know to Grow podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ivan Khan, and today's episode is mental health, getting help early. Unsha, before the most recent break, we were speaking about your vision for what's possible moving forward for the community, for immigrants, for South Asians, for folks from Queens, folks from situations like yours to all of our friends. Where does where did this all start? I mean, do you think this goes back to the immigrant experience, to to before that, to colonialism, to other types of oppression? Where has this journey, um, you know, led you? Like, where 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 is a lot of it rooted? I feel like it is definitely rooted in oppression and the oppressing of so many minorities, just systemically. So when you go back and look at history, you know. Our identities are rooted in what we thought would have to go along with in society. We never really got a chance to identify with ourselves and create our own identity. It was kind of always like we had to follow what the rules were for another society that was maybe controlling us, the government. So many things that have happened in like, so I think in a conjunction with all of that, now it's like almost up to our generation where we have the ability to slow down and take a look at the bigger picture of why all this has happened. And like I mentioned 
in other podcasts that I've spoken about um, intergenerational trauma. So there, there's just so many things that get passed down and things that we are dealing with today. We might not even know that they're from histories that are rooted within our parents and their parents and their grandparents. So that could be in our DNA. That could be in our environments that mom and grandma got into like 20 years ago and being passed down to me or her son. Or you, you pointed out that while there's intergenerational trauma that gets passed down, there's an opportunity for intergenerational healing. And I have two kids. My daughter's going to be seven. Uh, our son Ian's going to be five. At home, my wife and I are always speaking about ways that we can ensure that we can provide a good mental health environment for our children as parents. So what advice do you have for young parents? And maybe we can work back. What advice do you have for parents? What advice do you have for your peers who are in in the workspace and looking back for college students? I think first off, having that conversation is even so important and such a big step in this whole journey. Like, when I was younger, you know, we definitely weren't having these conversations with our parents. So I think it's great that you're even mentioning that in the household as a priority. So that's definitely one of them. I think in order to find the resources, I think just making people more aware that they are more accessible than we think. Of course, there's more work to be done. Like, for example, there needs to be more uh, people of color who are going into these fields. We need more accessibility. in the mental health yes. space. Yes. Like, I know a lot of people that I talk to, they would feel more comfortable maybe with, like, a minority therapist. And that directory isn't really that big when you look into it. Like, three so, people out of, like... Exactly. There's 25 providers... Three of them are minorities. Yes. So I think that can expand as time goes on. But for now, it's kind of like getting those first steps and resources. We need to make people like aware that they are available. I know a lot of misconceptions are about cost, about accessibility. So yeah. in New York, when you are looking for a therapist, there are so many websites, for example, like Psychology Today, mm. where you can actually put in and filter out with your exact insurance, the location you prefer. They even have a section of things you might want to talk about. So let's say you want your primary is it a free focus. service, Psychology Today? Yes. Yeah, so psychologytoday.com is free. Um, I've helped a lot of people find their own therapist on that website. And it does take time, but it's just like anything else. Like we do have to have patience for it. And it is an investment you're making in yourself and your mental health. So it makes sense that it would take some time maybe to find a provider. You know, you don't want to just go to somebody random with that you've never heard of or is like really far from you and you're committing to go to them once a week. So there. So most times, is it once a week, twice a week? Or can it depend? I mean, before the podcast, you mentioned copay situation. What is the cost? Like, if if someone's out there working and they're making like you know sixty to eighty grand and, and a good job, they worked hard and, and they're a couple of years in and they're really moving up the ladder and they have some good insurance or decent insurance. How much is it going to cost them with the copay and everything if they find someone in their network outside their network? So when I've asked my friends this question, like just as a kind of survey, like, oh, how much do you think there? Because I've gotten a range of answers. Like they think it costs anywhere from $100 to $300 an hour. And an while hour? that can be the case, there are so many um, therapists who take insurances and your copay will usually be 10 to $20. And I feel like a lot of people do not know that. So, so it'll $20 be... $20 per hour. And if you're once a, once a week, that's less than $100 a month. Yes. And they they run from like 45 minutes to one hour. It depends on the therapist. The frequency also depends on the therapist and it depends on you, on your accessibility, their availability, and I guess almost like the severity of the situation on like how much you need to come in, how much work you need to be doing on a weekly basis, monthly basis. Silly question. Name two or three things that you know that you and your friend groups, the peers, can easily cut out of your budget so you can use that money to invest in your own mental health with either um, a therapist, group counseling, if there are forums and sessions like that, whether it's free podcasts or it's online chats for therapy. So what are, what can we, what can folks cut out and, 
it's you know it's a it's a rated R audience, PG thirteen. Will people out there go don't go out as much? One one less Thursday night happy hour. What yes. are we talking? Eating out less or eating at a more affordable place, eating out at a less frequency, maybe with a big group, uh, traveling cheaper, or maybe even cutting back on how often you travel. Um, I would say even with, like you said, a happy hour, you know, maybe if you know that you have something scheduled and you have to go, maybe like limit on what you're buying that night or, you know, maybe you want to share something with somebody and split the bill or something. It's just there's so many ways to cut down on that cost, but it's ultimately up to the person to prioritize their mental health and know that they need a a set side budget for this because I have heard from a lot of people like oh I can't afford it I don't have the time but it's like what about that supreme jacket or the supreme side exactly. shirt and like the, the exactly. easy spot yes exactly and also knowing like it doesn't even have to be as expensive as you're thinking like you you might only need to cut back on like one restaurant for the month maybe if you find like one that works with your insurance a lot of people are like oh my insurance doesn't cover it I'm like oh did you call and ask and they're like no you know, and I was like, so how do you know? And they're just like, oh, I mean, I my insurance is okay. It's not that great. And I'm like, no, trust me. They never me. did shit. Okay, so let's go back. Not career peers, but let's move back a little bit towards college. Campus life, There's it's, it's a lot more, it's still in adolescence. So there's an extra layer of cognitive development and sensitivity. Where are the best resources if you're on campus and you know that you want to get help before it all really, really crashes. So in college, I think there's a lot of resources in terms of free counselors on campus that I, it depends on what school you're going to, of course, and maybe like group sessions or even advisors that can point you in the right direction as well and like give you more resources. So I think a lot of things on campus don't require you to pay a lot of the times if you're mandated even under the school's insurance. Because I know I remember, like at least for me, for Stony Brook, I would opt out of the insurance all the time because I was under my dad's. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people would have to be under Stony Brook's insurance, right. just mandated. So that service in itself would include other therapeutic services. But it's again, like I would hear people, and even myself, like I didn't utilize these services when I went to Stony Brook. But I would be like, oh, you know, how good can something free get? So it's, again, like that stigma of like some people are like, oh, it's too expensive. I don't even want to try it. And then when it's free, it's kind of like, oh, if something's free, it's not going to be that good. It's tough. People want it all out there. Yes. How about convenience? Oftentimes it could be shame because they're not there yet. So they don't want to tell their friends in the middle of, you know, basketball or, um, or, you know, just from class, hey, I'm going to go. Uh, where are you going? Oh, nothing. You yeah. know, like, I got to go see, I got to go talk to someone and they got to go to another side of campus or something like that. How can folks start getting around it and slash or how can they maybe even leverage things like podcasts? Uh, do you, are there some that you listen to uh, that you'd recommend so folks can start getting, becoming more aware of the best mental health resources out there, even listening to conversations such as today's? I think definitely listening to other conversations are a great way to start. And in terms of feeling that stigma of like, you know, when you're out and you have to run to a therapy appointment, you're kind of like, oh, I don't want to tell anybody where I'm going because then it's a whole nother conversation. There's also other platforms like online therapy, um, group counseling online. And when I like look at the studies, it is like limited data right now because online therapy is more of like a novel thing going on right now. But it does show that at least starting somewhere is better than not doing anything at all. So if you do have that accessibility issue where, you know, maybe you have a super busy job and your time frames don't work out to like commute somewhere, commute home, go to the therapy session for 45 minutes, you can start scheduling things online. So there's platforms that are just online based. So it's strictly online. You're going to be talking to mm-hmm. somebody. Um, I'm not sure too much on that topic. I haven't really dived into that one. But there are a lot of these therapists that I mentioned from psychology today that have like Skype as an option. Oh. Yeah. So it, it still is the same therapist that other people are seeing in person that, you know, might just be as effective in person, but they offer like that Skype session. It's incredible. It's, it's always fun to see 
techno technology being leveraged for human good. Yes. And getting mental health support is clearly a human need and hopefully over time can become a much more common thing. Podcasts, you're part of a platform. I'd love to hear a little about your platform. Any other podcasts that you're following that you want to shout out that are in the mental health awareness community? What's next for your work on this topic? And where can we find you? So for podcasts, I would definitely recommend um, Deshi Condition. Um, so that was started by one of my friends. I actually recently just spoke on her podcast. She speaks of like a multitude of different um, topics. I think, for example, one of her most recent ones was on anxiety. She had another um, episode on like alcohol dependence. And, you know, a lot of these topics are just things that we never really talk about and have a conversation about. So she interviews like a ton of different people that reach out to her and the conversations around that have just been really, really great. And, you know, she's really well informed on a lot of her goals and initiatives to bring out into the community. So I would definitely recommend listening to her. Anything unique about, I've heard, I've heard your interview on the Desi yeah. Condition and I recommend it to friends and family. Anything that's a, a hallmark like hey if you want this go to go to Desi condition because there's a few more I'd love to get your just just navigate this space on on Instagram I think she does a really good job of kind of specializing in like one different topic per week wow. so it's kind of like it would be personalized more so on uh, what you want to listen to yeah and I'd say there's just so much out there that it's pretty deep dives. It's, it's, not, yeah. it's not a superficial conversation at no, all. No, yeah, she like pretty much goes really uh, specifically into one topic. So I think that's really great because instead of covering like a lot at once, where like maybe you only hit the surface of a topic, she really goes really into it. So I think for somebody who feels like they can identify with one topic, they would get a lot out of listening to a whole podcast on that topic. Are there any other ones that you follow? For maybe not the deep dive, but something on the go, whether it's a post or you, you're a fan of their social media because they're just bringing a lot of continuous awareness or other th things that you recommend for our viewers and our promotions. Yeah, so on Instagram, I think, uh, like, for example, Children of 1971, they're doing a really good job of um, opening up a platform for our, a lot of people that are able to submit their own stories and their own personal experiences. So uh, I think it's really nice because for the person who's making that post, it probably is really healing and makes them feel lighter just to get that off of their shoulders. But it's also not isolating for the rest of us to read it and, you know, feel like, wow, this is somebody in our community. It's not just some random post, you know, on the other side of the world that we, we don't, don't know them or something. Um, it's a lot of familiar faces. It's people in our, like, generation, too. And, you know, we're not and alone. Suddenly the, the yeah. experiences and the testimonials become personalized in so many yes. more ways than we'd ever anticipate. Yes. And it especially, like, when a lot of people talk about their parents and the challenges that they've all gone through, it's... It's like, it's so familiar. So Children of 71 yes. is more of a multicultural, yes. of, of those abroad. Yes. Tell us about Bengali Health Movement, the one that you've become much more uh, tied to more recently. And I was there a sort of a relaunch more recently? Yes. I, I was reading about some campaigns you guys got going on. Tell us about that. Yeah. So currently, um, I just joined them as a um, Who's the group. Yes. So I just joined Bengali Mental Health Movement as their uh, moderator and facilitator for when we do have our relaunch in the process. We are launching an initiative called ALAP. So in Bangla, that means conversation. So our goal is to create workshops and events and more community awareness in creating these conversations around mental health on like, you know, many different topics such as grief, coping, resources. Um, they are launching their website again. And I one of my favorite features about the website is actually that they have a directory of psychologists, social workers that are, you know, maybe Bangladeshi. Or, but yes. You know, brown yes. people, people can talk to? Yes, oh, exactly. So it's like instead of looking around all over the Internet, we've kind of like created this one space. We where, did the search for you here. Yes. Is. Yes, and I just, that's honestly one of my favorite that's parts. That's your favorite one of your aspects. Yes. Do you see yourself 
transitioning to the space more professionally? You're an oncology nurse. Do you, do you plan to stay in oncology or do you plan to bring some of these more recent experiences around awareness building to your career? I think in my career every day, like mental health, that topic is always on my mind. Like when I'm with my oncology patients, there's a lot of conversation around death, around uh, coping, you know, caregiver stress, anxiety. So all of those aspects are tied into my career on an everyday basis. For my long-term goal, though, I one of my passions is definitely working in my community. So I do want to put a focus on that. You know, for now, I do love my position as a nurse in oncology. I do know that I'm making a difference, but I, there's more of other changes I also want to make in my own community of being a Bangladeshi American. So, yeah. Incredible. Where can our listeners find you? So they can find me um, working on Bengali mental health movement on Instagram. I share a lot of things on that platform as well. To, um, actually, on the 17th, today's the 17th. Today's the 17th? Yeah. yeah. Today's a Thursday. Today's a Thursday taping. It will probably out next week. What you got? What do you got? Yeah. What do you got going on? Yeah. What did you have last Thursday? So last Thursday we actually had an Instagram live, and I will. It was a great time. <laughs> so clearly, this taping is on a Thursday. Uh, Unsha is alluding to the fact that she'll be doing an Instagram live taping today. Uh, who's it for? Bengali Mental Health Movement. Bengali Health Mental Health Movement on Instagram. Hopefully, this is just the first of many conversations on this topic. We'd love to invite you back to the show and any of your teammates on Bengali Mental Health Movement. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us for this incredibly important episode for a topic that we hope to expand and, and grow on, grow upon. So until next time, I'm your host, Dr. Ivan Khan. You've been listening to the Know to Grow podcast. Always remember to pay it forward, folks. Pay it forward.